Hey, podcast community, it's Eric, and I've got something exciting for all you online entrepreneurs out there. If you're looking to take your e-commerce store to the next level, you need to check out Aurora Repricer. With Aura, you can effortlessly reprice your Amazon inventory automatically. Ready to elevate your Amazon business? Head over to milwaukeemafia.com slash Aura, that's A-U-R-A, to get started today. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Milwaukee Mafia. I'm Eric Waltigans. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin, got anything exciting for us today? Before we start, I have to let people know. So today's episode, the basis of this episode was 1,400 pages of police of a police record. Wow. And those 1,400 pages were turned into a chapter in the Milwaukee Mafia book which when printed out on 8 by 11 pages was like 37, 38 pages long. And I'm trying to get the notes down to about four pages. Okay. So I shrunk it from 1,400 to 37 to fit it in the book. And to go from the book to today, I had to go from 37 down to four. So this is 1,400 pages <laughs> in four pages. So just just a heads up. That this is extremely condensed, and if people are interested in this story, definitely pick up the book because there's a lot more that I just I won't be able to do for time. All right, well, take her away. Okay, so we're going to talk about a man named John DeTropany. And if you remember last time, we talked about Blackie Sullivan, mm-hmm. and John DeTropany came up. Okay, that's why I recognize the name. Okay, he came up as a suspect in one of the many shootings of... Blackie Sullivan. So we'll assume that he probably was involved. So John was born in Milwaukee. His father worked as a mason with marble. So he's a marble mason, which is pretty fancy, I guess. But he died prematurely. He died when John, his son, was only six years old. So so John was raised by his mother and his sisters. But he had extended cousins that kind of helped the family out. He had an uncle and, and this and that. And one of his cousins... A girl married into the Gardetto baking family, so they did all right. So for people, I don't know if that's a thing outside of Wisconsin. I assume it is, but Gardetto's is like a little baked snacks. Yeah, Yeah. I I, I wouldn't even know how to describe them, but I'm pretty sure they're everywhere. So Okay, like rye chips and stuff. I didn't even know they were actually from Wisconsin. They are, yep, yep. The Gardetto family is from Milwaukee, so. Very cool. I guess if people didn't know that, now you know Gardetto's are a Wisconsin snack. Okay, so th- this is the environment that John is growing up in. Also important to note, his godfather, his literal godfather, was Sam Ferreira, who was a Milwaukee mob boss. He already turned to crime by his teenage years. He got arrested with his step-cousin for rape. He was 15 years old. They got sent to a detention home. Within two years, he was arrested twice more for theft and suspicion of burglary. In both cases, he was released without charge. And he was actually... Never arrested again. So oh, weird. So he learned his lesson. As a kid, he he found out that, you know, either it's better to not get caught or not break the law. I'm not sure which, but one of the two. He likes women. <laughs> That's something that is going to be really apparent. Early on, he starts dating a woman named Mary. 
They see each other for a while, almost two years. They're going to bowling tournaments for fun, because this is what you do in Milwaukee. You go to bowling tournaments. One day, Mary's in the hospital, and she needs a blood transfusion. So she has her brother call John's house, and guess what? John's wife answers. But John convinced her that, don't worry, we're going through a divorce. And she stayed with him another two years. He gets into the tavern business in the 1940s. He opens up what were then called super bars. He opens up Johnny's Roundup. He gets the help of other businessmen in the area. But the businessmen kind of shrug him off when they start hearing rumors that he's stocking his bar with hijacked whiskey. That he's not paying the full regular price you're supposed to pay. He did buy some whiskey and some liquor from an actual distributor, a man named Babe Shaw. They became good friends. They would hang around at coffee shops late at night. They traveled to Chicago and New York. Their wives were friends with each other. But eventually their friendship fell apart because John still owed $7,000 on a liquor bill, which adjusted for inflation is $68,000 today. Wow. A $68,000 liquor bill. Yeah, he did end up paying the money back, but apparently the guy was pretty bitter about it and didn't want to be friends anymore. During World War II, he starts dating some other ladies, another lady named Mary, the second Mary, who is a model for the Boston store, another Boston store employee named Pat. They, uh, they go out on various dates, and there's actually a third lady named Mary that he dates and becomes very possessive of, apparently, to the point where she's not even supposed to be going out with her female friends anymore. The woman who he's most known to be attached to, besides his wife, is a lady named Terry. He starts dating Terry in 1944. He would end up dating her for 10 years. They would meet at the Tavern of Jack Enea 15 or 25 times a year. Jack Enea is another mobster, and uh, spoiler alert, next episode he dies. Okay. We've had him in previous episodes, He's been mentioned. Correct? He's yes. been mentioned, yeah. Because that name also rings a bell for me. So. Yeah. Terry's husband, Robert, files for divorce because his wife is dating a married man. He doesn't like that. He says he's not upset about it. He just doesn't want to be married to her if she's going to be doing that. How noble of him. Yeah. So apparently they weren't very good about protecting themselves because we know that Terry had a number of abortions over the years and on one occasion actually gave birth to John's baby. So, yeah. This is quite the guy. So this whole time, he's still, while he's dating all these other women, he's still married to this original woman? Or yes, he's, okay. he's married to his wife all the way up I mean, to the end. But he's just constantly dating somebody else, essentially? Yes. Okay. And the thing is, it's never made clear if his wife knows. But if his wife doesn't know, it's because everybody must go out of their way not to tell her. Because... All of his friends know. No. Like, he doesn't hide it. He go, he takes his women out to restaurants and does this and that with them. And all his friends know. A friend of his wife's brother knows. So his brother-in-law probably knows. knows. So if the wife doesn't know, I, they did a darn good job keeping a secret. Because he's just not hiding too it. Yeah, just too many people know for her not to know, essentially. Right. So yeah, they would go out to various restaurants. And yeah, and everybody would see them holding hands and everything else. They were not being sneaky. Uh, he gets to know some of the other mob guys in town. I don't know how early John himself is in the mob, but he definitely is hanging around these characters. He gets to know Felix Eldoricio, known as Milwaukee Phil, 
who was a top guy in Chicago later, the actual boss in Chicago. His best friend is Frank Logelbo, who's come up in this podcast a hundred times at this point. So they're good buddies. So yeah, he's... Very connected. Very connected. There's rumors of him supplying hijack whiskey to other bars around the area, even as far as Prairie du Chien, which is nowhere near Milwaukee. So apparently he's not just getting questionable liquor for his own bar, but he's then turning around and selling it to others. Mm-hmm. The end of the 1940s, John DeTropany is pointed out as one of the people who shot Blackie Sullivan, as we talked about last time. So allegedly, they were going to go and buy a nightclub together. Things fell through, and then he was paid possibly $10,000 to shoot Blackie Sullivan. If that's true, nobody was actually arrested. So who knows? But that was what was alleged. So Blackie Sullivan doesn't like him very much. Can I take you a second back here? Yeah, do it. I have a curious question. Do it. You talked about that he's selling this stolen liquor, essentially, to all around the state. Yes. Now, this is in 1940, you said? This is the 1940s, yeah. So prohibition is over? It's over. Okay. Do you have any idea how long the black market liquor market went on after prohibition ended? Because, I mean... When did Prohibition end? 33, 1933. So seven years later, and it's still common to, I mean, is there a black market, booze market now? <laughs> was this something that the mob just always did? Well, was sure. stealing the booze? Okay. Well, if you own a bar, and like one of your biggest expenses is booze. It makes sense to steal the booze. If the booze falls off the back of a truck, <laughs> and you get it for very cheap, why would you not? Very true. Very true. It just seemed weird to me that this late in the game that they were still playing. Oh, but I, I guess, yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't stop stealing something just because it's legal. <laughs> I, I suppose. I suppose. Yeah. A popular restaurant, the Holiday House, is burglarized in January 1953. $15,000 is taken from a safe. The police believe that two burglars broke in by jumping from the roof of another building onto a second floor door, like a balcony. And broke in that way. That's ballsy. Mm-hmm. The FBI believed that the safe was stolen because the mob owed $25,000 to Chicago to pay for a truckload of hot meat that they messed up. <laughs> so this goes back to the hot meat, meat episode. episode yep. I don't know, again, if this is true, but they think that this money was to pay off this botched hijacking of hot meat. The co-owner of the Holiday House, John Volpe, thought that John DeTropany was in the mafia, which he was. So he asked him, do you know who did the job? DeTropany's like, I don't know anything about it, but if you need any help, let me know. DeTropany was a big-time boxing fan. He would regularly travel to Chicago to see Rocky Marciano fight, uh, along with a number of other big names who, if you're not into boxing, aren't going to mean anything to you, but he was always going to see boxing in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And he would take along people. He would take John Volpe from the Holiday House. He would take Frank Legelbo. So he was buddies with these guys. Phone records at his tavern show that he was in regular contact with Felix Eldericio in Chicago, a burlesque club owned by the mafia in Chicago called the Silver Frolics, and a number of local gamblers, which isn't surprising. He maintained connections to the local Teamsters Union. He was friends with the business agent for the Teamsters. So that's another connection. John Trumpney knows everybody. What is a business agent for Teamsters? I don't know. You're calling me out on that. And it's a good <laughs> it's a good question. The head of the union, the position is called secretary treasurer. You would think it'd be called president, but the actual head of the union is the secretary treasurer. The business agent, I'm not entirely sure, but they're kind of like the front person, like the person that you would talk to. 
but I don't know what they actually do as a job. If they're like a recruiter or if they deal with outside, if they if they're the actual negotiator between businesses, I don't know. Okay, I don't know, and I should know that answer because understanding how unions work is sort of key to some of this <laughs> stuff. So I should know that answer, but I don't. Okay, but the point being, a business agent is an important role well, in a we, union. Yep, he has investments in oil wells in Denver. So at one point, he's going out there, he's getting people to invest. John Volpe again from the Holiday House invests over $3,000 in an oil deal and gets nothing back. When asked about it, Volpe says, well, he's in the mafia. For all I know, he just pocketed it. <laughs> he wasn't even terribly upset about it. That's great. That's kind of the risk you take when you invest yeah. in something with the mafia. Yeah, on one occasion, John DeTropany carried a package, and a person inside the bar asked if he was carrying his laundry. He handed the package to the man and said, I bet this is the first time you've ever had $20,000 in your hands. <laughs> DeTropany then took the package back and handed it off to his bookkeeper. It actually was true that it was a package of $20,000. This was a regular thing he would do is he would go and get large sums of cash because I guess, I don't think you can do this anymore. I'm pretty sure you can't. But apparently it used to be common for people to come in with their paychecks and they'd cash their paychecks at the bar. So they would sign their paychecks over to him and then he would pay them the cash. So it wasn't like he was carrying around huge chunks of money all the time he would just have it ready for payday why would a bar want to do that just so that like then the person would sit there i guess and spend all their booze at that's the only thing i can imagine i don't know because you're not really making any money off of that other yeah. than the fact that if someone's cashing their check then they've got money to buy, buy booze. booze yeah and yeah. that's the only thing i can come up with and that's a huge risk too it is a, it's a huge risk check bounces and that's or whatever a, again this is the 50s so that's a crazy amount of money yeah a check with his bank account showed that that was pretty common that he would take out this large amount of money and then a day or two later he would deposit all the payroll checks and it would kind of balance out. His personal account wasn't anything like that. It was rarely above or below $1,200. So it was just his business account that was crazy like that. It's Whatever money he personally had was not in the bank. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to jump ahead a little bit. to key day, which is why I'm using the specific <laughs> day. March 17th, 1954. John DeTropany wakes up at the crack of noon. <laughs> at the crack of noon. <laughs> He is 40 years old. He goes to a store. He's hanging out there with one of his oil well investment buddies. And while there, he runs into an off-duty police officer. He asks the off-duty police officer to look up a license plate number for him. The officer says, we can't really do that. And then jokingly asks, is this a license plate from one of your girlfriends? And John replies, you know how much trouble those girls are. <laughs> so even the off-duty police know. <laughs> what kind of slime ball he yeah. is, huh? Yeah. John calls his wife that evening at 5 o'clock. She tells him that she and their daughter Catherine are going to have dinner at Chico's Barbecue, which is Frank Legalbo's restaurant. John said, sounds great. I'll meet you there. The women arrive at 6.50 and John's already there having dinner with Frank Legalbo and his brother Russ. John says, I already ate, not that hungry, but whatever you guys order, I'm happy to pay. John leaves at 7.30 p.m. After dinner, the ladies go home. John's already there watching boxing on TV with his other daughter, Rosalind. His wife leaves at 8 p.m. to go visit friends. John makes a phone call to an unknown person at 10 p.m. and then leaves the apartment. 
He was next seen an hour later at the Holiday House restaurant, sitting alone. He leaves at 11.45 p.m. This is the last time he is seen by anybody. I could tell by the fact that you had exact times everything was happening. I'm like, oh, somebody's about to get dead. Yeah, someone's (laughs) about to get dead. Not until they get to the next page, but yes, (laughs) someone's going to get dead here. Now, a very strange thing. In the Holiday House on this evening, while he's sitting there alone, there's actually a number of people in the Holiday House that are very unusual characters. And I will tell you who they are. Okay. First of all, Peter Granada, a funeral director and former U.S. representative, and James Aducci, who was a state senator from Chicago, who had recently been indicted for receiving kickbacks from state contracts. He was a a known friend of various Chicago mobsters. He knew those people. Okay. And a man named Ned Bakes. Ned Bakes at the time was wanted because he was hiding a fugitive from the FBI. He was also a partner of known mobster James Muro, whose nickname was Cowboy. Bakes was not his real name, but that's what everybody knew him as, because his real name was Ignatius Spacazzi, which is not nearly as easy to say. (laughs) So he went by Ned Bakes. Bakes would later serve time in prison for tax evasion and ultimately be murdered, but we're not going to talk about that. Okay. Dom Volpe, no relation to John Volpe, the restaurant owner, was the business manager of the mafia-linked premium beer sales of Chicago. The men stayed at the Holiday House until 1.45 in the morning, where they continued the night at other places around the area, including the La Tosca Cafe, which they stayed at until 4 a.m. La Tosca will come up again in a moment. Okay, so these people that you just mentioned that were there, they're there with him? They're not there with the Tropany, but they're they're there in the the restaurant at the same time. Okay. Gets weirder. Also, at the same time as all these guys, is Emil Winotka. And if I'm saying that wrong, sorry. (laughs) Emil Winotka was the owner of the Little Bohemia Lodge, which is famous because it's where John Dillinger had a shootout with the FBI. (laughs) Wow. Winotka was also a suspect in a murder in Kenosha. So totally strange that all these characters would be here in the same evening. Also, a woman on site was arrested for prostitution that night. Not surprising there. Not surprising. (laughs) Not connected to these guys, but just also happened to happen that evening. Fast forward a couple hours. John DeTropany's bullet-riddled body is found at 3.42 a.m., slumped behind the wheel of his Cadillac near the La Tosca Cafe. Patrolman took fingerprints and photos of the car, and the time of death was actually estimated to be shortly after midnight. So, if that's accurate, he was sitting dead in his car for over three hours before anybody noticed. The body was identified at the scene by one of his friends, who happened to be at the La Tosca that night. Owner of the La Tosca was Carlo DiMaggio, who came up many episodes ago because him and his brother were suspected of stabbing a guy to death. So A lot, a lot of bad people involved in yeah. this. Carlo DiMaggio was working at the La Tosca that night with his son, Sam, who was a known felon and burglar. Well, felon because he was a burglar. (laughs) But Carlo said he was never outside because that place was jammed with Irish people all night. (laughs) Those are his words. In the car, the police find a loaded 357 Magnum, a dull blue 45 automatic pistol, a full 45 clip in the glove compartment. Six bullet holes were in the driver's side window, and they could tell they were fired from the passenger seat of the car. They were not fired from outside the car, they were fired from the passenger seat, meaning somebody was sitting next to him when he mm-hmm. got shot. 
Six spent cartridges were on the floor in the car. So again, indicating the gun was fired inside the car. At the morgue, four forty-five bullet holes were under his right ear. So I'm pretty con- serious here. I'm confused though. The person that was riding with him was not the one that shot him. No, it is the one who shot him. It was so like he was driving down the street in his car with somebody next to him, and that guy just took a gun out and shot him. Well, I presume they were parked, but yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. It's not probably a great idea to shoot a guy while he's driving. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That would be pretty stupid. At the morgue, they found a third gun, a loaded thirty-eight Colt revolver that was in Detrapani's pants pocket. So there were at least three guns <laughs> in the car at the time he was shot. Frank Legelbo, arguably Detrapani's closest friend, was in and out of his restaurant all night, last checking in at 4 o'clock in the morning. Was he a suspect? Hmm. We know that he was awake all night. And we know that the mafia has a tendency to hire people that are close to the person. That are close to the person. If you can get close enough to sit in a parked car with a guy and shoot him four times in the head. You got to be pretty close to the person in general. Not a random stranger sitting there. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where we're at. From there, the police go and they do an investigation. And a couple motives were put forward. If you have anything else at this point, go for it. Otherwise, I'm going to jump ahead to the motives. I think I'm good. Okay. Here are a series of motives that the police were investigating. Okay. An anonymous individual said that Detrapney was involved in hijacked liquor, which is true. Mm-hmm. Also, he was involved in counterfeit money. An out-of-town man was sent to kill him because he would not cut anyone else in on the profits. Most of this liquor was going to Las Vegas. It was going there by the thousands of gallons. The hijacked liquor part, maybe. The not cutting people on the, in on the profits, maybe. I have no idea why you would send it to Las Vegas. That part seems sketchy. So this anonymous tipster, I think, maybe is half right. Another anonymous person suggests his oil deals brought him three times the money that he had invested. He was killed for these oil deals, but they weren't going to get the money because the stocks were put in his wife's name. Maybe. Maybe, uh. A confidential source said, The murder of John DeTropany definitely is linked with the activity and the participants of the hijacking of a load of hot meat during the month of July 1952. I don't think so. <laughs> but I always appreciate any time the hot meat comes back up. <laughs> And I don't remember, did we talk about on the Hot Meat episode why this probably is not linked? It could be, but Detropity's name never even came up in that. So if he was linked to it, I've got nothing. Okay. Nothing to show that. So, which doesn't mean it's not the case, but I don't know why he would get the blame for any of that. Mm-hmm. An anonymous phone call said, check up on Hijack Liquor, and you will find why he was killed. Because he promised that he would take some of this hijack liquor, and then he didn't. So this is them saying he agreed to buy somebody's hijack liquor and did not, so they killed him for it? Right. So it's a different version of the hijack liquor story, where now it's somebody hijacked a truck full of liquor, and they killed him because he refused to pay. So, I don't know, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, like if they had given him the liquor and he refused, then just never paid for it? Yeah. That's possible. I could see that. Another anonymous person pointed to two men who were killed in gangland style and found frozen to death in a trunk in Chicago. The anonymous person believed that John DeTropney was responsible for killing these two men and this was a revenge killing. Possible. I have nothing connecting him to the two men, so I don't know. Finally, years later, Frank Legelbo himself told an informant, not realizing he was telling an informant, 
He said that John DeTropany was killed because he tipped off police that the Chicago outfit, the Chicago Mafia, was behind a gambling deal that took a large sum of money from oil baron Robert Roman. Now, because it comes from Frank Legabo, I feel like that's more reliable than most of these. Especially because I actually have a name and not just an anonymous person calling the police. Because an anonymous person calling the police could just be like some conspiracy nut that has their own theory on it. Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you, out of those 1,400 police, I mean, I cut a lot of that because there are some nutty people that will call for anything. And here, and again, I I find this more plausible because of the source, but it's interesting because it never came up at all. This gambling, this oil baron, Robert Roman, I have no idea who Robert Roman is. So this angle, if it is correct, was never part of the investigation. So it wasn't until many years later, I don't remember when Frank Legobo was caught telling this informant. It would have been probably 20 years after the fact. So, yeah. Did they ever research that further once that came to light to no. see if there was any relevance to it? No, because the informant that he told was an FBI informant. And this is kind of how it works, is the FBI doesn't tell the police anything. anything. Yeah. Yeah. So the police probably were never aware that this was even a, a thing. Until years and years later when somebody could actually access the FBI file, basically. Right. Is that what it is? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, for whatever reason, you know, they don't like sharing information. So there's a number of times in FBI files where an informant, like, they'll ask an informant, like, hey, can you tell us about a bunch of old crimes? And they will. And they'll say this person did this and this person did that. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But they don't ever look into any of them. And like, they don't I think ever they, pass it to the right person. And they don't to pass look. it on to the police. So it's like, I think they ask these people just to kind of like test how reliable they are, they are as a source. Mm-hmm. But they don't ever do anything with it. And that's so interesting because my assumption would be they don't tell the police because they don't want to trip the police off that they're looking into something. Probably. Could be. You know, and I kind of get that. But at the same time, think of all the murders that might have gotten solved if they would just share this information. No, it's true. There are occasions where they'll talk to an informant, a reliable informant who will be like, oh, yeah, the two guys who shot him were this guy and and this this guy. guy. And they might still be alive, but they don't then ever be like, oh, we should probably tell the police to check into these two people. Yeah, yeah, get a a little look into this. Even if it's somebody they already looked into, at least give them a second look. Be like, talk to them a little more forcefully here. Mm -hmm. Because there might be something there. Yeah, you never hear them passing it on. Yeah, honestly, that doesn't really surprise me all that much. I don't know if it, maybe it surprised me at one point, but it doesn't surprise me anymore. anymore. Yeah, Yeah. because you're so used to seeing it that... I'm so used to the FBI, like, collecting information and doing nothing with with it. it. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty much the super summary of this case. Like I said, anybody who's interested in more, there's a whole lot more detail in the book. I don't like to push the book, but this is a case where it really is of great value if you're interested. I so. just had a question come yeah, to me. So, sure. so your positioning is of all the people that called in and stuff with tips on who that possibly could have done this. Frank Legalbo, in your mind, is the greatest possibility of being the actual one. Yes. Is there any other ones you really like in there? Or are they all, all the other ones like, do you have a theory other than that one that you like? Or are they all just kind of theories that people are calling in and there's really no... The hijack liquor thing was a running theme. He's killed in 1954. They knew since 1942. So for 12 years, they knew that his name would come up in hijack liquor cases. He was never caught for it. 
but it would come up. So it's reasonable. Mm-hmm. Like that that's ultimately what gets him killed. But I don't know that. Yeah. I mean, I don't but know there is who it no is evidence. That would kill the him. only evidence there is is that you know he was into hijack liquor. I know he big, was in hijack liquor. So, time. you know, you upset the wrong person and yeah, I mean, the mob is a strange thing because sometimes you'll get killed like it's really obvious like why you get killed. If you're an informant, they're probably going to kill you. Like that makes sense. But then there's other times where they might just give you a slap on the wrist. Mm-hmm. So, it's it's always hard to tell if you're going to be killed for a mistake or not. And it seems like more often than not, what they do is maybe one out of five or one out of 10, they actually kill because you don't have to kill everybody. You Hmm. just kill somebody so every so often. So they know, oh, well, they actually can kill people when they want to. I probably shouldn't mess with them. So for all I know, he didn't even screw them over that bad. If that is what happened, Mm -hmm. he just happened to be the guy they were going to make an example out of. But I don't know. I don't know if it's the hijack liquor. I don't know if, if he did rat out some people for this gambling deal with this oil guy who I don't even know who that is. Have you ever looked into that oil guy to see if you could find anything about him? I feel like I probably would have when I was putting the book together. And then the last couple of days when I was putting the notes together, I mean, I looked him up and I couldn't even couldn't find, find like, anything about Like if I looked really hard, I probably could, but it wasn't obvious. For a guy that they kept calling the oil baron, you'd think you could find that. Mm-hmm. And apparently he must not have been that big of a deal because it doesn't easily come up. If I did a deep dive into the newspapers, maybe I could have found him. And then earlier on in the episode, you mentioned about he was at a bar, right? Okay. And there was all these strange people that were in this bar, like really powerful mob members and yeah. stuff like that at the same time. Was that brought into the story just because that's very interesting that all these people were in this bar all at one time? Or do you have some working theory on why like was there a big meeting at this bar that could have been going on because that was the night he got killed right Right, he left that bar and what got killed right so i don't think he really touched on what the running theory is why were all these people in this bar ultimately i think it was just a big coincidence you do i really do i mean obviously they looked into all these guys and and they basically said they all had an investment in this aluminum siding business in milwaukee so they had a reason to be in Milwaukee. And I, I wasn't very clear. I didn't specifically say it. But the day that Detropony is killed is March 17th, 1954, which is St. Patrick's Day. Mm-hmm. So it's a big bar night. So it's perfectly reasonable that these questionable guys who have business dealings in Milwaukee are going to go out drinking while they're in town. And if they're going to go out drinking, of course they're going to go to one of these Italian questionable places. So it's not that odd. The only reason I really bring it up at all is just because they all have interesting backgrounds and they were all there. Even if they didn't talk to him, all these guys who are... Very mob-connected guys are in the bar shortly before... And they're our... all capable of probably either killing him yeah. or ordering somebody to kill right. him, which is really interesting. Right, but it's just it's an incredibly weird coincidence that these out-of-town guys... We're all in. Are with a guy, a mob guy who's murdered the hour before he's murdered. But they were not with him, correct? They were no. just in the bar. We don't know they that they talked to, talk to him, him at, at all. all. Okay. But it could have been all a big meeting and that meeting could have gone crazy and then they all decided to kill him. And right. We don't really know <laughs> that. It doesn't seem like that's probably feasible because if right. they did look into all these people... They probably would have found something to suggest. They did, that. yeah. They looked into them all pretty thoroughly because 
they talked to the guy who ran the holiday house, John Volpe. And John Volpe, although is friends with a lot of questionable characters, he himself does not seem to be questionable because he's pretty open with talking to the police. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so he told them flat out. He's like, these are the people I know who were in the bar that night. And these are the ones who were a little questionable. So he could have flat out said, I don't know who was there, but no, he, no, just... he pointed them in the direction. But... And I'm sure they would have rather not had their names come up at all. Which is surprising. Didn't ever get John Volpe killed. Or are we going to hear about John Volpe? I don't getting... think John Volpe gets killed. Okay. I don't know. I don't remember what ends up with him, but I don't think he gets killed. His business partner's son. On the other hand. On the other hand, does does get get killed. But that's a little ways down the road. All right. Well, I think that wraps this one up. All right. So this was our second to last episode before a little break we're going to take. Next time we'll come back with our final pre-break episode which as we've already revealed will be about jackie nea who dies so we'll do that and then we'll go on our little break if anybody wants to reach out with questions comments you can reach me at milwaukeemafia at gmail.com you can go to milwaukeemafia.com see the beautiful website all the fbi files stored there so you can see the actual source material and maybe by the time this drops the actual police file will be up. That one is in paper form, so I have to scan it. That's why it's not up yet. But it will be eventually. Between now and next time, thank you guys for listening in. It's a real pleasure just to tell these stories. I just want to say thanks to everybody because as of last week when we recorded, I believe we were completely out of questions for the Patreon. And I'm holding a list of six new questions on the piece of paper. I don't know that they all came in this week or if Gavin's just been lazy and hasn't put the list together. No, all but one of them are new. All of them are newer well one of them was a holdover from the previous list but otherwise they're they're all all new so yeah so thank you everybody for putting those together get signed up so you can hear the questions and as always leave a review on your favorite podcast player and we will be back next week with a patreon and two weeks with a new episode yeah all right thanks everybody for tuning in thanks for tuning in to the milwaukee mafia podcast join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and True Crime History.